Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. Proudly supported by the Judith Nielsen Institute. Saturday, June 5th, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. Before we begin today, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the Gadigal land and pay our respects to Elders past and present. I'm Chantelle Alcouri. And hey, I'm Charles Rushforth. On the show today, we're going to hear about anti-Semitism experienced by the Australian Jewish community and also discuss tennis player Naomi Osaka pulling out of the French Open. But first, we speak to model Lynn Matutu about diversity and representation at Australian Fashion Week. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Did you catch any of the shows at Fashion Week? Text us in on 0409 945 945 or you can tweet us at FBI to let us know. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Over the last few days, the whole country had its eyes on Redfern's very own carriage works for the annual Australian Fashion Week. And this year, things were a little bit different. Far from the usual models and brands we're used to seeing, Fashion Week was refreshing and featured people of colour, queer, average and plus-size bodies on the runway. It was also a historic first for dedicating two shows to First Nation designers. Here to discuss the changing face of Australia's fashion industry is model Lynn Matutu, who walked on Thursday. Lynn, thanks so much for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited. So, Lynn, you modelled at the Jordan Spyridon Go Gosh show, a super colourful, very bold, very fun affair. Um, was, it as, was it really fun walking that show? It was. I had so much fun on that day. Um, everyone was super nervous backstage because it was pretty much everyone's first time actually walking like a runway type show. But it was so much fun. And the cast really did make it what it was. Because everyone was pretty much friends. Um, but yeah, no, it was great. It was so much fun. Well, what kind of representation did you see at Australian Fashion Week this year? We mentioned that it wasn't the usual affairs that we usually see. What did you see? Yeah, um, I thought it was really great um, from compared to other Fashion Weeks before. There was a lot of queer influence, I found. There was a lot of um, POCs. There was a lot of um, black influence as well. But it didn't feel tokenistic as it normally tends to feel. Like, it didn't feel like brands were just doing it just for the sake of ticking a box or just saying that we've done it. It genuinely felt like there is a push for queer voices to be heard, to have different shapes and sizes um, walking down the catwalk. I remember I spoke to my friend Baja backstage before Jordan's show and she was like, I would have never gotten a chance to do this with other brands because I am a curvier black woman. And I was like, that's very true because brands don't normally look for things like that. Um, but no, it was definitely a push towards having a more inclusive sphere um, with putting those people at the front, marginalized people at the front and showing that this is where the talent's at. So it was different. It was great. Um, Lynn, a year on since the Black Lives Matter movement, what changes have you noticed in Australia's fashion scene beyond Fashion Week? Um, I think the changes have been very minimal. I haven't really noticed many, if I'm being completely honest. Um, for instance, I, I mean, I went to a show on Monday, um, and I mean, the brand itself, I won't name names, but is very much... Um, well known for, you know, using black voices and trying to sort of push for that 
you know, this is what we like, this is what we care about. Um, and the show itself pretty much had um, barely any um, black people cast in the actual um, show. And from what I've seen, a lot of brands are still, and a lot of agencies, they're still just having the token black girl, the token Asian girl, the token light-skinned girl, the token what type. But there's still a lot of change to go. I think it's really important that brands are starting to recognize that the talent does sort of sit in more than just a square sort of um, definition. It sits outside the boundaries of just like, I don't know, a skinny white girl. Um, but no, there is definitely has been minimal change, but I think there could be there could be way more. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5. If you've just joined us, we're talking to model Lynn Matutu about diversity at Australian Fashion Week. So, Lynn, you mentioned that not has not much has changed in the fashion world, but black and people of colour are dominating Sydney's it scene, it scene at the moment. Why is this shift mm-hmm. so important to maintain? Oh, I'm absolutely upset. There has been so many events that have been run by black and uh, queer people of colour over the last, um, couple of months and it really just sort of puts a spin on the industry and it shows that if you're not going to listen to us, we're going to make you listen to us. We are going to show you that we are so talented, we are innovative, we are creative um, and the ideas that we are creating, you're going to want and you're going to use to market in your big campaigns. Um, and I swear to I think I tweeted this before, I was just like, Black and people of colour, if you're not going to get the chance to speak um, before these big brands to sort of push for your own voices and creativity, create your own voice, create your own space, create your own sphere and make them listen to you. So I think it's so important to do that because it's just going to take away from the, I guess, the general notice that creativity exists either in one body type or in one skin colour type. It's just going to show that people can do various things if you are given the opportunity. And most of those people are black people of colour or the queer people of colour and they're just not the cookie-cutter type of person that we've just been exposed to for the last, I don't even know how many years, for as long as they've been alive, essentially. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely important. Um, Lynn, before you go, I don't think I'd be doing my due diligence if I didn't ask you this. Um, what is your hottest styling tip that listeners can take away? Oh, I think um, lots of... Well, no, I think it's best to be comfortable and to style your own body with whatever fits you perfectly. Um, and just, I've been trying to incorporate a lot of colour in my wardrobe as well. I've been terrified afraid of using colour for the longest time um, because wearing neutral colours is very comfortable. But I think if you just want to explore and go outside your boundaries, splash of colour, do something that you wouldn't normally do and don't be afraid to do something just because people don't think it's cool or whatever. Just do do what you want to do, essentially. That's my takeaway. Do exactly what you want to do and work it because you will. You absolutely will. That resounds um, so deeply within me. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Lynn. No worries. Thanks for having me. That was model Lynn Matutu on the importance of seeing a range of faces and bodies at Australian Fashion Week.
Don't go anywhere because up next, Backchat producer Nicole Ilya Goeva discusses reports on anti-Semitism against the Australian Jewish community with co-CEO of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry, Alex Rivjin. But right now, we've got a song for you from Sydney Afrobeat artist. This is Sanjay featuring Party at 11 with Passenger. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5. Since the recent events in Israel and Palestine, many have conflated their anger with the Israeli government towards the Jewish community, spouting hate both physically and online. Yeah, regulatory bodies in the UK and US have reported a 500% and an 80% rise in anti-Semitism, respectively, in the last four weeks. To discuss, Backchat producer Nikki Ilya Goeva spoke to Alex Rivchin, the co-CEO of the Executive Council of Australian Jewry. Content warning, this conversation contains references of sexual assault, distressing threats and explicit language. Thank you so much for joining me, Alex. My pleasure. Before we actually get into this topic, let's first identify the definition of anti-Semitism and how the term came to be. The term anti-Semitism itself is a highly problematic term, actually. It was invented by an anti-Semite, by a guy called Wilhelm Marr in the 19th century in Germany. And he wanted to give what was previously known as Jew hatred or Jew baiting a more scientific, legitimate sounding name so it came up with anti-Semitism. And it's distorted these days, but the term was invented to apply solely to hatred of the Jewish people. It's not about Semitism. Semitism isn't a thing. There are a Semitic peoples and Semitic languages. When we talk about anti-Semitism, it's a new word, relatively new word for a very old hatred of the Jewish people. And it's taken many forms over history, many accusations and slanders, which we see to this day. So things like the Jews are responsible for killing Jesus, which we call deicide, the blood libel, a medieval conspiracy theory which alleges that Jews revel in the blood of innocent children, the global domination anti-Semitism theory about Jews controlling the media and the financial system and government and everything. Could you paint a picture of the rise in anti-Semitic incidents we've been seeing worldwide as a result of the recent events in Israel and Gaza? We've seen attacks on Jews throughout the world. Uh, We've seen in London, for example, a convoy of cars leave a pro-Palestinian rally in Trafalgar Square, head straight to a Jewish neighbourhood called Golders Green in North London, get on loudspeakers and chant, rape their daughters, fuck the Jews. We've seen Jews beaten on the streets of LA and New York, uh, innocent civilians minding their own business, beaten up for no reason, violently assaulted. And here in Australia, we've seen, fortunately, no violence yet, but we've seen plenty of threats of violence, including post that people should use AK-47s against Jews at a pro-Israel rally in Melbourne. Um, And so it's become very widespread and very quickly, like in previous campaigns between Israel and Hamas, which have lasted for much longer than this one and have involved far more casualties. It's usually taken a lot longer for this sort of venom to come forward. This time, it seems in the space of a few days, we saw this outpouring, this surge of anti-Semitism and violent attacks on Jews around the world. You touched on it earlier, but how has the Australian Jewish community been impacted by this surge in anti-Semitism? You know, the last few weeks has left the community um, feeling, I would say, rather alone and in some regards probably powerless because seeing mainstream media regurgitate a particular narrative, seeing the pure hatred on social media, it's made a lot of Jews feel, you know, really let down and seeing the the intensity of that hatred and the spillover into naked anti-Semitism has made a lot of Jews feel unsafe. 
And more specifically, could you give some examples of how Australian Jewish students and young people have been impacted? Well, I've heard of, you know, Jewish students on campus worrying about whether they should go to campus because they've received death threats, Hitler memes, all sorts of stuff online. And they wonder whether this is just people, you know, doing silly things online or whether this will manifest itself in the real world, whether they'll be at physical threat if they set foot on a campus, knowing that there are people, their fellow students who harbour these views and aren't afraid to, to show them off. You know, there have been mothers who have contacted me wondering whether they should send their kids to the Jewish day school. You mentioned social media, which has played such a huge role in Israel-Palestine. What impact do you think that's had? I mean, the, the whole way that people receive information, gather their news, form opinions about complex issues has changed. And social media has become the predominant way that people, you know, form views on things like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And activists on both sides have woken up to the power of social media but it seems that the pro-jewish perspective is just dwarfed by the hatred on the other side and people then delve into the subject again form very shallow opinions based on images they see in memes and graphics and that inevitably leads not only to threats online but then this spills over into the streets in real life as well anti-semitism has never gone away it's always morphed Uh, it's always adapted to the times and the places and the sources of anti-Semitism have varied, but its impact has always been destructive and it's a form of racism which has to be called out and understood as such. With many people criticising the Israeli government, how should people ensure that their critique is not anti-Semitic and doesn't endanger Jews? You can criticise government policy very easily, very frankly, very directly by talking about the specific policy, the impact that it has, how things could be done differently. No one has any problem with that. No one has any objection to that. No one would dare call that anti-Semitic. But when you start seeing old anti-Semitic slurs, you start to wonder what the motivation is. Is it about criticizing policy and seeking policy change? Or is it about spouting hatred and expressing a hatred and contempt for a particular people? And lastly, could you provide some tips on how to support and be allies to the Jewish community? I think it begins with listening to the Jewish community and hearing in good faith and with sincerity the fears and concerns of the Jewish community. And that doesn't mean cherry picking a few marginal voices who are anti-Zionist and deny the existence of anti-Semitism and so forth. I'm talking about listening to mainstream, run-of-the-mill Jews, typical members of the community, hearing what they have to say, hearing what Zionism is from them, from people who believe in it and live its values, hearing what anti-Semitism does to them and the impact that it has. Something that occurs with the Jews and no other people, it seems, is that when we try to call out racism against us, we're viewed as being somehow sinister or dishonest. You know, I've heard politicians, even in this country, saying that Jews fabricate anti-Semitism in order to shield Israel from criticism. And when people say things like that, it completely disempowers the Jews, disenfranchises us, takes away our rights to call out racism against us. So if someone's been allied to the Jewish people, begin by listening to us. That's that's really the beginning of solidarity. Thanks so much for your time, Alex. Great pleasure. Thank you. That was Backchat producer Nicole Ilya Goeva breaking down the spike of anti-Semitism against the Jewish community in the last month. Stay tuned because up next we're chatting about athlete mental health and why tennis player Naomi Osaka is making the news. Before that, we're going to play a song. This is a smooth R&B track. Sydney artist Isadora with the best. Keep it locked on Backchat, FBI 94.5. FBI.
This week, four-time Grand Slam champion Naomi Osaka caused shockwaves in the sporting world after stepping away from media obligations, causing her to cop a 15k fine and threats of being disqualified by organisers. Yeah, after a mix of praise and backlash, the tennis star ended up dropping out of the French Open. And it got us talking about the relationship between athlete mental health and the media. So, do you think the French Open handled her case professionally? Join in on the conversation on 0409 945 945. Now, producer, uh, Backchat producer, Justina Basta joins us in the studio to break this one down. Hey, Yus. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, super good. So, walk us through what happened. Okay, so of course, after Naomi pulls out of the two press conferences, she also pulls out of the tournament. Um, And then she goes on to post on Instagram that she had suffered depression since the US Open in 2018. And I don't know if you guys remember seeing the video, but she was booed um, when she won against Serena Williams. So I'm sure she had a hard time coping with that since then. Um, And she would even wear headphones um, during the tournaments to kind of dull out her anxiety. Um, But, of course, the most divisive part was that um, she refused to do the the post-tournament question time um, because she found it really stressful, um, which is, of course, against her contractual responsibilities and obligations as an Mm. athlete. Yeah, I think it caused a a mix of, like, emotions from other tennis players as well who said, yeah, I can relate to that, and others who've said, it's unfair if you're dropping out, everyone should have that uh, the ability to do that. I think the bigger picture is are uh, these athletes getting the mental health support they need where she felt like she her, the only choice was to drop out completely. What do you think, Charles? I think it's great that you mentioned Serena Williams and um, Naomi Osaka's uh, where she was booed um, in that tournament a few years prior because um, Serena's come out in support of um, Naomi a lot. I think a lot of her experience kind of resonates with um, Serena Williams handled tennis as a kid this great video of her being inter- interviewed when she was 12 and um, the, the journalist was um, asking some pretty, you know, uh, questioning her confidence and things like that. And then you see this great moment where her dad steps in and kind of like pulls him back and tells, tells the journalist to leave her alone. So, yeah, it's definitely like we ask a lot of tennis players, hey, in terms of making them perform at an athlete level and then, yeah, making them answer questions, win or lose. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of sports peers have come out, like Serena Williams, like you mentioned, um, and uh, Russell Wilson and Steph Curry. So, of course, they could be sharing the same sentiments because they all kind of have to experience the same thing. Um, And there's also a statistic by sports medicine that showed that um, athletes were significantly more likely to report high to very high psychological distress compared to the general community. So it was 17% compared to 9.5%. So perhaps that opens up a conversation about a broader scale mental health topic that needs to be discussed in the sports industry and community. Yeah, in saying that, what do you think should change? What should happen um, in terms of, you know, playing the game, but also partaking in media obligations? It's tricky, isn't it? Because I think everyone's really, um, it's, everyone is kind of, uh, we've all noticed that this is a contractual thing, you know, athletes agree to, be, to do the interviews because, you know, um, people want to know their thoughts on the game, you know, the, I think that's a really important, important part that journalists can hold athletes to account as well. But yeah, it's just like, I've had a friend who was a pro tennis player and then, you know, kind of like burnt out pretty badly and went on to do other things with her life. But she said like one of the worst things was just, yeah, the pressure on court and off of having to perform at a really high level all the time. I guess like 
it's almost like we just need a, um, a bit. There's just so many ways of getting media out of tennis players now and so many other settings, I, I guess, I could you know, envis- envision yeah. in terms of, like, does it have to be always this traditional press conference style? Maybe there are other ways to accommodate it for tennis players who are uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think there'd be some creative options out there. Naomi even mentioned herself that she's happy to have some media coverage. She just wasn't simply comfortable with having it after the game. Mm. So, yeah, definitely some adjustment that could be you know, made yeah. with that. I think also I was reading an article where they spoke about the types of questions that tennis players do get. Mm. You have the sports journalists that ask questions that are about the game and they truly care about the answers. And then there's other journos who are chucked in the mix mm. who ask questions like um, Simona Halep was asked if her breast reduction had served her on the court or outside. Yeah, That kind of thing is very, very common. Um, and, yeah, I think it'll it'll be a lesson to all journos who, who step into that room and also to, you know, um, the Australian Open. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, even with Kyrgios as well, yeah, it's very interesting to see how these tennis players deal with these, um, yeah, yeah, pointed well, attacks. Thanks for joining us, Justina. That's actually all the time we have on the show this week. Uh, a massive thank you to our producers, Justina Basta, Millie Roberts, Nikki Ilyagoyeva and Tanita Rezaghi. This, this has been Backchat, your go-to rap for news and current affairs. You can catch us next week at 9.30am, but stay tuned for Limsa Kimbo, who's up next. We'll leave you with a song. This is from the States. This is Soul Cooking, featuring Larry June with Choose Up. Language warning. Cooking soul.